thank you. My worship team, my leader, Sister Ashlyn, my wife, Brother Blake, all the effort and the time, preparation to lead us in worship in this service. I, I do understand that it's almost a quarter till. It's about 20 minutes till, and I promise to try to have us at least to an altar call in 15 or 20 minutes. If you have your Bible while I'm introducing or, or opening remarks, if you can turn with me to Second Chronicle, First Chronicles 22. Verse number five. First Chronicles twenty-two, verse number five. Blake and I got a chance to talk just a little bit, just one-on-one -on -one at the last youth event as we drove to Monroe, and he began to tell just a little bit about some of the ideas that he has of how the youth group can grow, and. I was very pleased and it was like a breath of fresh air to hear some of his ideas and I don't believe it was a coincidence that the last two to three youth events we've had more kids and more visitors outsiders than what I can remember in the last six months. I believe as bittersweet as this service is that it's definitely the will of God and that Brother Blake is going to definitely take these young people to another dimension and to another elevation that hasn't been seen up until this point. When I took when I took the youth, I was over 20 years old, just just married. And parents, especially Brother Donovan, Brother Scott, Brother Poncho, some of the the, the way I handled situations at 20 is a little bit different than how you would handle them at 30 and more than likely how you different than how you would handle them at 40. But you guys let me grow and let me mature from the topics and subjects of what I taught in Sunday school to how I tried my best to deal with situations. And I thank you, all of you parents, for the latitude that you've given to me to try my best to mold with the help of the Holy Ghost and put my hands on your kids. And I do hope that it makes a difference. I believe it. this is the last time that I'll stand here in this exact authority and dominion to be able to speak to my young people. Because, yes, you belong, young people, to everybody. Your community property. We all have opportunities and will probably take the liberty at some point to maybe put our hands on you but tonight you're my young people still and I am sharing you with brother Blake and he is going to minister to you over the next several years but I'll never minister in the capacity that I am able to minister in tonight so if you will give me just a few minutes and I promise you I will be swift I believe that God has a word not just for youth. I believe it's from grandparent to grandchild. But specifically, I believe that God has a word for my 16 to 25-year-old young people. I don't believe some of you are necessarily here by happen chance. And if you will allow God, I believe, with the help of the Holy Ghost, 
you will be ministered to. First Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 5. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding, magnificent, of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Now if we'll flip to 1 Chronicles 28, just a few chapters over, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 10 and 11. Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. This is still speaking to Solomon. Verse 11, Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch, and of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and of the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat. One more scripture, chapter 28 still, but move down to verse 20. And David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and of good courage, and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. For just a few moments, I want to minister from the subject, God's masterpiece. God's masterpiece. If you can lay your Bibles aside and if we can lift up our hands. Lord, we ask you to speak. God, I pray that it come with precision, accuracy, and with a target, Lord. God, I pray that your anointing would move. And I ask for it just once more, God. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We give you all the credit and the glory, God. And we pray, thy will be done. You can be seated. Everyone can have their own interpretation of what a masterpiece is. If you go to Webster... Webster says a masterpiece is a work done with extraordinary skill or a supreme intellectual or artistic achievement. In medieval times, a masterpiece was a piece of work that was presented to a guild as evidence of qualification or acceptance as a master. It had to be one's best work. It had to reach a particular standard. When it comes to artistic achievements, we, we try to summarize art as just a form of painting or, or a drawing of some kind. Possibly uh, young men not carrying the level of masculinity that would grab our attention. I doubt that there's any of my young men here today that's got their easel and their apron at home and they're just waiting to get back to maybe paint nature or, or something outside as beauty. But in actuality, art takes many forms, many of which are probably more relatable to you and I than what we may even realize. Everyone has a skill. And young people, what you were doing up here tonight and what, what's happening in these youth services as you, you have that skill and you're beginning to hone that skill, you're beginning to practice it and put it in motion and make it a, a better skill or a skill set. The more you exercise and you hone that skill, it becomes an art. You, you don't just wake up, boys, knowing how to blow a duck call. And 
Oh, the Lord, you don't just wake up one day and can call that turkey and him not even realize that it's synthetic and it's artificial, but it takes uh, some time to get the hang and to blow and to work until it's become an art. Because uh, it is an art to blowing a duck call. It's, it's an art to calling in a turkey. And perhaps you're a salesman and it's an art always mesmerize me how a good salesman can make someone purchase something they don't really want with money they really don't even have because it's an art that they draw you in to where you can't say no and decline perhaps you're a builder and there's an art to crafting the wood and building someone's dream home and many homeowners they view their place, their home and residence as a masterpiece. You see, a masterpiece, it has to have the draw of an all. It has to have that effect on you. When you look upon a masterpiece, you, you can't help but all. There's an art to cooking. You, the perfect dish doesn't just happen the first time. You you smoking sausage, Uncle Lloyd. You've got it down to an art. I prefer your sausage over the other that I've tried because uh, you've mastered it. Some chef, if you've ever been on a cruise line, you could really attest to this, but maybe we've all been to a place where you order a dish and it comes out and it's almost so pretty, you don't want to eat it. It just looks good. But and in actuality, sometimes it does look better than it even tastes. And the chef gets more interested in the appearance of the meal versus what it tastes like. And young people today, if I could draw just a little metaphor and excerpt in this part of my message, you can get caught up, young people, in your appearance and worry about how cool or how hip and how fashionable you might be and what basketball player is wearing it and what, what celebrity is endorsing this and forget your purpose and why you were even made. We actually have a portion of art, and I don't know how many of you have even recognized or realized this, but there is a piece of famous art that is hanging on the walls of this church. If you go in through the men's prayer room, hanging on the wall on the left side, there's two arms stretched out. That art is just a portion of a very famous painter or painting. It's called The Creation of Adam, and it was painted originally by Michelangelo one of the most famous Italian painters. And you can go to the 16th chapter, chapel, sorry, 16th chapel in Italy and look upon the top and it's a huge mural that took years to paint. There's no even way for them to value that painting. It is a masterpiece. Hands down, the most famous and widely recognized art today is the Mona Lisa. Surely everyone has at least heard of the Mona Lisa. It was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. It was during the Renaissance age of the early 1500s. Although da Vinci made hundreds of paintings, the Mona Lisa is, without controversy, his life's masterpiece. It resides in a museum in Paris today, and it is said to be worth between $750 million to $1 billion. There is not an insurance policy 
big enough to cover the value. They have to put security and they have to put additional measures and glass plates in front of it because people have attempted and tried to throw acid on it just because of their anger at their government or something that has them upset. Our first biblical example of a masterpiece is in Genesis chapter 1. God began to bring color to darkness. He, he placed a blue sky that met a golden yellow sun. The night sky was given little specks of light that colored the sky. He put a blanket of green across a barren landscape. Colorful fowls filled the air. It was perfect. And even God bragged on His own work. In verse 31 says, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. You see, God likes perfection. In Psalms 50 and 2 says, God dwells in the perfection of beauty. When the picture is just right, when it's just like God ordained, God sees it as a masterpiece. He'll call it very good. That's because everything God has ever had His hand in, it is a masterpiece. However, between the last verse of 31 and the next chapter, the thing that changed is there was an Adam and an Eve. It was the creation of man. And God changed just a little bit of how He builds masterpieces. Up until that point, only God controlled the stroke of His brush. But at the moment that Adam and Eve were molded, He began to provide just patterns and templates and designs, but He allowed man to take part as the artist, drawing on the canvas of their own lives. Not everyone I know tonight will seize the opportunity given to them and paint a masterpiece of this service. Not everyone will love and just and be inspired by. Approximately four weeks ago, and this, this will probably be the little bit of humor that I bring tonight. Approximately four weeks ago from today, a very famed current Italian painter named Kathleen taped a real banana to the wall of a canvas and titled it The Comedian. It was part of a collection of art sold on the same day. Now, a ridiculous $10 banana taped to a wall with duct tapes sold for a whopping $120,000. Look it up. Look up Banana Art, The Comedian. It will be It'll pop up everywhere. It amazed people. And supposedly, when they asked the painter, what, what was the objective here? He said, the objective of the art is to offer insight into how we assign worth and what kind of objects we value. Young people, my humor tonight, just like Catalan, we're an artist in charge of our own art. And everyone sitting here today, yes, you're given the authority to draw your own art. And some of us have been drawing our scene for many years. Only time will reveal our life. 
will be that which is worthy to be called a masterpiece. And rest assured, you can become a banana on a wall of the devil. And he'll put a value on your life. The only difference is you will be the one to pay the hefty tag. How you assign worth to your teenage years will likely determine the value of your masterpiece. To my older teenagers, I understand that you say, hey, just give me the brush, Mom. Just give me, uh, I'm ready to paint my old picture. I'm ready to begin my journey. It's my life. It's my portrait. It's my pictures. I just want to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to take you through a 10,000 foot flyover of Solomon's life. I'm going to do this for those of you who like to keep up with the where you're at in the service or the sermon. I'm fixing to bring eight snapshots, eight portraits that are very important in Solomon's life. I guess you could call the meat of what I have to say in the next eight snapshots. Solomon, in the first snapshot, Solomon has chosen to do a job. His destiny was to build the temple of God. God didn't allow David to build it. He just allowed David to prepare. You see, there had been too much bloodshed. The Bible even said it. God spoke to David and said, David, I know you want to build my house. I know that it's your heart's desire, but the one thing I'm not going to give you is an opportunity. You see, you shed too much blood. But it's this second generation. You see, parents, uh, you've paved the way. You've brought peace uh, by the sword that you've swung, uh, by how you've pushed away the spiritual warfare, how you've paved the way for a second generation. You prepared for it. You want to see it. And I pray by the grace of God, every grandparent in here sees it. But I want you to see tonight. Don't. Be disappointed because God's got a second generation. Yes, you've cleared the way and you've pushed some enemies back. You see, just to give you an idea of the landscape, David had already went up to Mount Moriah and he bought with a price the place for the temple. It was an old threshing floor from Hornin. There's been a lot of grinding in this occasion. It was once rocky and healy, but because of the grinding that's been done by grandparents, because of the continual push and perpetual fight, it's become a flat foundation for these young people to begin to build and erect the masterpiece that God has given to them. In 1 Kings 2, 1-9, David advises Solomon... He's speaking into his life. He's telling him, son, I read it tonight. Uh, you've got to be steadfast. You've got to be strong. But David does something that we can all learn by his parents. David warns of two people. He said, you've got to be careful of Shimei. And you've got to take care of Joab. You see... He begins to tell him, you know, son, what Joab done to me. When I was supposed to be at peace, 
he brought war. When he was supposed to obey me, he brought bloodshed. I can't help but think tonight that it might do some young people some good, parents, uh, if you could warn them and you could tell them, uh, maybe not the who, but you could tell them the what, the says, son, come here. I don't know if we've ever had this conversation before, but you need to know that there were some things when I was younger uh, that they got to me. Uh, they done me wrong. Uh, and uh, don't you dare not believe uh, that whenever one adversary came to a parent, uh, and if it isn't uh, dealt with, it will come and deal misery to the second generation. What can we do? For one reason or another, I, I, I have to believe uh, that young people, uh, I don't have a bunch of spiritual penny any uh, coward young people. Uh, I have to believe that there's something that rises up in them uh, and says, no, I know you. You done my mama wrong. Spiritually speaking, you got a hold to my daddy. Young people, do I have any of you here tonight that would be willing to say you may have got my daddy, but I've been watching you for whatever reason. Dad may have had to deal with the circumstances different than I had to deal with. I will take care of you. And when I take care of you, it'll be once and for all. Snapshot number two. Solomon has to overcome some adversaries challenging and preventing him from building this masterpiece. Number one, it's, it's his brother Adonijah. He makes a power grab for the throne. And guess who? This other adversary that has to be dealt with, not on Solomon's own time when he got around to it, he put what daddy said in his back pocket, and he knew, I got some people that's going to have to be dealt with. But before he even has an opportunity, you got to understand, Solomon took the throne at roughly 15 years old, young people. Not a whole lot of wisdom. Solomon wasn't born the wisest man. God anointed him to be the wisest man. So he isn't so sure yet how he's going to govern. But guess who comes and challenges him? Joab, the very one that his daddy said, son, I couldn't deal with him. But I'm expecting you to handle up and to take care or he's going to deal you some misery. But the difference, Joab was the commander of the Israeli army. He had the backing of legions. But you see, Brother Gavin, come help me. He didn't he didn't try to take it on his own. You see, he had an armor guard. He had a palace guard. He was responsible for guarding the palace, and his name was Benani. Benani, if you translate it, it comes from the Hebrew word bana, which means to build. And it comes from Yah, which is by God. So he had him a friend that was built by God. And he said, Ben and I, I'm going to need your help. I'm not sure how we're going to deal and how we're going to go with this. And Ben and I said, don't you worry. I can strive. I'll go to the end. And you know how and where he got a hold of Joab at. Thank you, bud. It isn't in the middle of the 
courtroom or in the middle of the hallway at school, young people, but he found him at an altar and he struck him down at an altar. If we had more young people that would say, I'm your Ben and I. Wait, you've been dealing with this. I got something for that. How many of you tell them, hey, get it off your phone. Hey, we're not going to talk about them like that. What can we do? Who is your Ben and I tonight? Shimei, he still had to be dealt with. And David tried to deal with him with a little bit of mercy. He said, Shimei, in so many words, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to banish you. You're going to have a fenced, fenced area. And I give you boundaries. And I don't want you to cross those boundaries. You hear me, young people. What he tried to do was take a his spiritual adversary and put him in a cage. I referenced my mom and dad, my family over Christmas at one of the most powerful services at Peak I ever heard was Brother Mark Copeland. Some of you remember the stars of sin and he made such a, an awesome picture and analogy of saying you can't put the devil in a box. You're never going to be able to pat your adversary. It's either alive and it is the focal point of your masterpiece or it's dead. There's no in between and it didn't take Shimmy out long that he tried to slip out. You see, he thought he was cunning. He slipped out and he slipped back in and he was back at home just real sly. There was a Ben and I. There was a message that came that said, that devil's not staying in his box you put him in. And Solomon gave the word that says, handle it. And he was stricken down and he was destroyed. Snapshot number three, I'm trying to hurry. Solomon makes an alliance with Egypt. The third portrait in this entire masterpiece of life, Solomon makes an alliance with Egypt. Now, I want you to know that this is prior to him praying and asking God for wisdom and understanding. See, oftentimes... First King, hold up, First King 3 and 1, and Solomon made an affinity. An affinity is a marriage by alliance with Pharaoh's daughter. So before he gained some wisdom, young people, he made a bad alliance. This took place before he asked for wisdom. How many people make mistakes at a young age before maturity and before wisdom. Young people don't build alliances at a young age. Don't go off and get a lot of debt and have to make an alliance with a job that you can never come to church with. Don't get so devoted to a ball team that your alliance dictates godly decisions. The world is full of people with felonies. Babies, marriages, divorces because of the decisions and the alliances they made at such a young and vulnerable age. And he brings Pharaoh's daughter for a political alliance to try to gain peace. He brings Pharaoh's daughter not just into the kingdom, but he puts her up in daddy's house. Snapshot number four, Solomon asks for wisdom and understanding to govern the people. And God grants it. God gives him 
his request. He even, he even uh, brags on Solomon. He says, you could have asked for riches and long life and you could have done some selfish things, but you asked for wisdom and understanding because uh, your motive was right. At your young, vulnerable age, I'll give you everything that you didn't have to ask for. Wealth, riches, acknowledgement, popularity. Snapshot number five, Solomon seeks help from daddy's old alliance. Hiram, the king of Tyre. Hiram, the king of Tyre, provided a lot of the stones, the gold, the cedar that Solomon used to build at the temple. Young people, if you want to know what friends to have, won't you take a look at mom and dad's friends? If you can have friends that model after mom and dad's friends, then you won't make the wrong alliances. And you'll have friends you can call on. Snapshot number six, Solomon builds the temple. He relocates the ark, the sacrifices he makes and dedicates the temple. He, at this point, Solomon has arrived. At this stage, Solomon, he's got the tiger by the tail. You've got overlayments of gold, cherubims ten cubits high. You've got huge stones and large pillars. You've got a, a laver so large it's called the molten sea. You've got bases made out of brass. You've got gold vessels. Solomon even gets a visit from the queen of Sheba just to view and awe this masterpiece. Snapshot number 7. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. But, there's always have to be a but. And scripture never starts off well if you, if you see a but. That means but somebody didn't do what they should have or were supposed to do. Young people, it would be your goal not to have a but in your life. A but with one T, not two. But you don't want to ever say, I could have but, or I should have but, I would have. You know, I, I can be but. King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. You notice that he puts that at the helm of the women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. Verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Malcolm, the abomination of the Ammonites. You see, Ashtoreth and Malcolm were idols. Then did Solomon, and here's the sad part, then did Solomon build a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. You see, the idol Ashtoreth, that represented a female goddess of sexuality, of fertility, of, fer of desire, beauty, and lust. And the idol Molech was the Canaanite god associated with child sacrifice through war and fire. Before one could ever get to the high place, before anyone could ever get to this masterpiece, uh, they had to walk past uh, an idol. They had to walk through abomination to even get to the house of God. An idol placed at the same elevation, the same resting high place 
as God's masterpiece. Young people, the reason why it's a struggle to get to church or to participate sometimes and get anything out of church is because of what you have to walk through to get to the high place. There's sexuality and there's lust and there's, there's desire. And it gets as much attention as God. You have, before you can leave your house, young people and parents, I hope you know this. If not, this is a revelation. But the filth of Snapchat and that platform and what it offers them, they're having to look at that on the way to church. They're having the mess that gets texted this day and age, and the abomination of the phone, young people, you know that I'm telling you the truth. Filth that gets the attention on the way to the high place. Parents, I say this with all humility and with all respect, but there's a spirit of Molech that will resurrect itself and cause you to make decisions that will sacrifice your child for the sake of, without understanding and realizing it, my musicians and singers come up. If we could all stand, my snapshot number eight. It's First Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Solomon has passed on. No longer his day. It's just his masterpiece. Still called the temple of Solomon. Or Solomon's temple. The scripture says, and I am paraphrasing. In 14 and 25, Solomon's father-in-law, Shishak. The Pharaoh of Egypt, the alliance that he made, rose up against Jerusalem. And stripped away the treasures of the temple. He stripped away the beauty of the masterpiece. He left it bare. Just a shell of its former beauty and appeal. That old alliance killed the masterpiece handed down to the third generation. Five monumental and valuable paintings by a renowned artist named Mark Rothko was donated to Harvard's Museum of Art in the 1960s. Valued at somewhere around $250 million, these five paintings. He donated them, but he made one demand. He had a stipulation. He said, I require that these paintings be hung in a penthouse dining room with the drapes drawn. This particular room was used daily and was known for its astonishing view of the Charles River. This room was used for parties and gatherings where no one seemed to care about the $250 million hanging on the wall. The drapes never stayed closed, allowing harmful UV lights to shine in on these paintings. A harsh environment without the proper care diminished the colors of the paintings. Dullness fading. It slowly lost its vibrance. And eventually they were taken down and just put away. One man's masterpiece, $250 million, just put to the side. And some four to five years ago, a Harvard art conservator located the paintings 
and began studying how can we restore them. The problem was the artist mixed the paint himself. So it was impossible for the conservator to mix the paint just exactly the way it was. You know, the brush strokes just never would line exactly up when they attempted or tried to consider painting over and bringing color back. So the conservator got the help of a Harvard scientist who began to develop a particular non-invasive restoration. Not a single critic was allowed to view the paintings until they were placed on display. The scientists used a simple but complex solution. A special type of light was designed to shine on specific dark spots. The shade, the temperature, the hue, the angle of the light was just perfect for that dark spot. It, it made the viewer stand in front of it and all. Because it appeared as though it was just painted yesterday because, you see, the light of God can cover your darkest spot. Your dullness can be brought back to light and you can't paint over the wrong that you've done. You can't just erase your lifetime of painting. There's a light. It's designed specifically because your dark spots are just significantly and slightly different than your brother. And what you've been doing, what you've dealt with, and, and the things that you've come up against, it's, it's made a little spot. I, I, I never realized it, but after I looked at the original and now it's a little bit dull. And my altar call tonight is going to be just slightly different, young people. You see, it takes multiple generations for a full masterpiece to be born. Young people, my age of 25 and lower, if you feel like tonight that there are some spots that you wish you could take away, when you come up here, I want you to get one of these brushes, and this brush is going to represent the work of God tonight. And I want for every young person that decides and chooses, not expected or demanded or required, but chooses to come to this altar, I want a second generation with their hands on them. I want a third generation, if at all possible, with their hands on it. The kind of masterpiece God is trying to birth in Wallace Ridge, you see it takes multiple generations. It transcends just one demographic. David's generation prepared, but Solomon's generation executed. We're all painting a masterpiece today. The question is, what will it look like? It may take an artist a decade or two to paint a masterpiece, but it gets painted one day at a time. The building block gets put in one day at a time. Every service is another brush stroke. Will your masterpiece be just a raw picture of yourself? Just an image of the flesh? Or will it be that of the Spirit? How will your masterpiece, young people, how will it be viewed, Christian? How will it be valued? A masterpiece will be valued. It'll be what you're known for. Your masterpiece will be what you're known for. Eve's masterpiece is centered with an apple. Cain's masterpiece is centered with bloodshed. And Gavin's masterpiece 
going to be what he makes it starting tonight. Noah's masterpiece would be a large ark in salvation. Jonah's masterpiece is just a whale. Ethan, your masterpiece depend on the decisions that you make. Jonah, Samson, Daniel, would it be a Delilah? Is it a lion in a den? David's Goliath would be the focal point. It's what people recognize. David slew Goliath. That's his masterpiece. Solomon's masterpiece is the temple. Jesus' masterpiece, Andrew, is you. Evan, Jesus' masterpiece, son, is you. Havana, Jesus' masterpiece is you and He's given you the authority of the brush strokes. I want everybody, eyes closed. This altar is open.